You're listening to Midori House, first broadcast on the 31st of July, 2018, on Monocle 24. Hello and welcome to Midori House, coming to you live from Studio One here in London. I'm Daniel Bage. On today's show, Zimbabwe awaits election results. Focus is not the past. The focus is the future. Past mistakes we correct. Past omissions we remit. Past omissions we, re- we relieve. The upstart opposition leader Nelson Chamisa is claiming victory, but also accusing the ruling ZANU-PF of its old vote tampering tricks. My guests Quentin Peel and Joy Ladico will be discussing what's at stake in Harare and the day's other top stories, including French President Emmanuel Macron's approval ratings have plummeted, with two votes of non-confidence on the table. How does he turn this around? And more Brexit panic. Now there's talk of food rationing and calling in the army. Plus. Where is the best place to travel by train? Some or one lonely rail director anyhow say it's Britain. That's all to come on Midori House with me, Daniel Bache. So welcome to Midori House. My guests today are Joy Ladico and Quentin Peel. Welcome both back to Studio One. Uh, Joy Ladico, a columnist for the London Evening Standard, and Quentin Peel, an associate fellow at Chatham House. We begin tonight in Zimbabwe, where the country awaits the results of a landmark election with both frontrunners for president confident of claiming victory. Observers say the race between President Nelson Mnangagwa's ZANU-PF party and Nelson Chamisa's MDC alliance is extremely tight. Monday's vote for president, parliament and local council was the first held since Robert Mugabe was ousted last year. Previous polls in Zimbabwe have been marked by systematic violence and fraud, with SANU-PF's vote rigging uh, Mugabe's favored tactic for staying in power. But the Electoral Commission in Zimbabwe has said they are confident there has not been any cheating. New this evening, Chamisa's party says he's won the vote and the delay in results is because SANU-PF have been stuffed the ballot boxes. Uh, Joy, perhaps we'll start with you. Is this a way of Chamisa getting ahead of the story and trying to drive the narrative no matter what the result is? Well, I think the thing about Zimbabwe is the language of politics has Mm. been so polluted for so many years. It's at some point becomes impossible to tell the truth from this distance. I mean, what's changed this year is that there have been US and EU election observers Mm. which have not been there previously. And so at that point, you begin to think, well, whatever's happened in the election, the report we get after will give us a better idea as to whether we should take the new government, whether it is Mananagagua or Chimiza, a bit more seriously. Uh, Quentin, as Joy says, it's been 16 years since monitors were allowed in. US and EU monitors have been watching this vote. Uh, do you see that changing anything this time around? I don't know. I think the mood is a hell of a lot better than mm. it has been in in the past. But having said that, election observers can only do so much. Mm. And it's very difficult when the the institutions of Zimbabwe have been really undermined for years. And to, to suddenly expect the Zimbabwe Election Commission announces, hey, this was all free and fair. Mm. Well, it's the Zimbabwe Election Commission that's the problem. Right. And uh, I fear that it's, it's not having reliable institutions. So 
As it's so close, I mean, I, I think it really is going to be close, partly because ZANU-PF normally just walks to power. They've got a clear majority, a clear tribal majority, clearly. Their support is in Mashana land, and that's two-thirds of the country. But having said that... Um, they're split. And mm. that's what the overthrow of Mugabe did. So for the first time, there is a real chance for the opposition, perhaps, to come out with a majority. That would be very good for democracy. Might be quite dangerous for the country. There could be an awful battle afterwards. Mm. Yeah, apparently uh, some estimates put the voter turnout at over 75%, uh, which has been blamed for the delay in the results. Uh, Joy, do you see Zimbabwe having turned a corner here now with uh, largely peaceful voting? Um, well, the, the reports coming out do seem to be peaceful. Mm. Um, the this something uh, erratic tends to happen when you get high turnouts in votes because you actually don't know which way they're going to go, right. who's been swung and who's been moved to go and vote. You then have to look at the absence of people who hadn't voted previously and why they did not vote and whether that was through intimidation, uh, through kind of fear that their ballots would be revealed and so forth. Um, so I think it is a good sign that a lot of people have gone out to vote. Um, as Quentin has said, though, election monitoring is a, is a difficult matter in such places. And so you then, uh, if you already have odd numbers and then more odd numbers start appearing, you're never entirely sure how um, they're going to work out. And also an election monitor can only report something that mm. he or she sees and all sorts of strange things may have been going on on the run-up to it. Well, uh, current president Emerson Mnangagwa was a longtime right-hand man of Mugabe, former spy chief. Uh, Quentin, if he wins, is it more of the same then for the country? Well, I think it is extraordinary. When Mugabe was overthrown, mm. it, it was as if there was a great weight lifted off the country's shoulders. There was an extraordinary positive mood in spite of the fact that Emerson Mnangagwa has clearly got blood on his hands, is clearly totally involved in the previous regime. But there was a feeling that, oh my God, it, it really could be different. And he's played his cards really quite well. He's been very open to the outside world, inviting people to come in, looking for investment and so on. So from that point of view, um, I think there is a feeling of change even if he mm. gets to it. Um, but I think it would, as I said, be much better for democracy if they could really show that the movement for democratic change, which has the urban vote, that's very important. It has. It's not the rural vote. The movement for democratic change, it would be good for Zimbabwe to have a really new government and a younger government, because after all, Manangag was 75, and uh, he really represents the old school, not as old mm. as Mugabe, but uh, nonetheless, he's an old man. Yeah, we have 40-year-old Nelson Chamiza, who's surely made a name for himself in a short amount of time since Mugabe was pushed out last November. Uh, how has he gone about mobilizing so much support, Joy? Um, well, I think partly, you know, the the MDC was always going to rise at the point mm. at which it felt like it was going to take power. Um, I mean, he's risen from absolutely nowhere, from one ministerial post. And I think the media is always looking for the story of the fresh-faced young man uh, or woman occasionally, but usually men, um, like Macron. Um, and this may be his opportunity. However, as a lot of people have said, you know, he has no political experience. So it's all very well riding this kind of wave of popularity. 
But when it actually comes to the job of governing, um, I mean, Zimbabwe is fairly ungovernable and fairly corrupt as it is. Really, the country, I think, needs to get this right. So much on the line as far as international investment. That's always talked about in reporting. Uh, what do you think is at stake uh, with the country moving forward here, Quentin? Well, there's a huge job to be done of really getting the economy back, getting people back to jobs. I mean, an awful lot of Zimbabweans have just left the country because there was no work to be had. They had this... I mean, horrendous hyperinflation uh, in recent years that they have sort of got under control, but but still not enough. Now, they are very exposed, and they are very exposed to one particular country which has lent the most of the money that they've borrowed recently, and that's China. China have been backing Emerson Mnangagwa. I think it was as much China as the Zimbabwean army that actually got rid of Mugabe. So there's going to be a very interesting... Uh, play here now for, um, in a way, which way Zimbabwe goes with uh, a lot owed to China, but maybe the Brits, the Americans, the Europeans all wanting to get back in there if things can come back on an even keel. Zimbabwe used to be this fantastically prosperous country compared with its neighbours in southern Africa. It's been ruined over the last four decades. We should mention your former Southern Africa correspondent as well. You've seen a lot happening there. What direction do you think both of the, the main candidates, the leaders, want to take this country in? Well, I do think that they want to open it up and really bring back, well, they want to bring back prosperity. Mm. It's a very fertile country. It's got, it's got wonderful, it's got mines, it's got gold mines and coal mines. It, it could and should be very prosperous, but the political undermining of the, of the country has has been tragic. Now, if you could get back, at least get a bit of confidence back, I mean, in a way, possibly the best thing that could happen to Zimbabwe now would be that neither of the two parties battling for power win outright, that you have a government of national unity of some sort, which really tries to bridge this tribal divide right. in Zimbabwe. That would be very good for the country. Well, fantastic analysis from both our guests here. We're going to turn our attention now to Westminster. The UK Parliament currently out for its summer recess, but that doesn't mean there is a shortage of Brexit stories. Of course, over the last couple of weeks, the prospect of a no-deal Brexit has caused panic across different industries, with some suggesting the UK will go back to the days of food rationing. Joy, food rationing. How did we get to this point in the narrative? How did we get to this point? Well, <laughs> um, the Brexiteers in Theresa May's government were challenging her to uh, be more serious about a no-deal outcome. And so she began to produce the plans that what would happen ha happen if we had a no deal, mm. at which point the Brexiteers said, no, stop publishing those things because it's just creating a climate of fear. It, it is project fear again. But within those plans were these details about how we were going to manage our food supply, which is entirely international now. It's half our food is imported. I don't have the figures of how much we export, which is about our kind of internal industry. But you begin to realise what a we all know this, but how deeply interconnected we are with the EU um, just for our kind of daily lives. And we're now trying to unpick it. So stockpiling and rationing mm. has um, taken us back to a kind of World War II scenario in our heads. No matter the outcome or how these get out or if these storylines are meant to get out, uh, is this sort of planning normal for things like food rationing and other? Well, I think, I mean, I think every government, I mean, I've been to food security conferences and mm. sat there sort of stroking my chin thinking, is this really going to be an issue? This is about two or three years ago. Mm. And sort of suddenly it's sort of come back 
onto the agenda as one of the major issues. And it's correct to have it as an agenda uh, item. Um, you know, the main problem is the customs. Uh, is One of the problems is going to be customs, actually how you get food across the border when you're having to do all right. sorts of checks on it. Um, the other is the fact that we we haven't got any trade deals and it's all we haven't sorted out our future arrangement with the EU um, and we are looking at the moment uh, as though the chance of no deal are going up pretty steeply and at that point you do need some emergency planning. Uh, Dominic Rad, Rab story, has proudly said there will be adequate food supplies. It increasingly seems that they're just going on uh, with this plan out of pure pride. What do you think, Quentin? Uh, yes, I mean, it, as Joyce said, you couldn't invent it really here with the hardline Brexiters saying, we've got to demonstrate that no deal is better than a bad deal. Right. And the moment it starts to be demonstrated what a no deal looks like, they say, shut up, that's not nonsense. You're inventing this. It's, it couldn't be invented. The trouble with food supply is it's it's just in time. Everything's just in time. So the slightest delay could completely disrupt the whole system. We don't have the storage capacity. So actually, suddenly you scratch this point and you realise that actually I don't think they have the capacity right. to do a no deal. No deal is a terrible fantasy. The rest of Europe knows that. We can't afford to have a no deal. At the moment, what we've seen is that we're trying to turn it round on the rest of Europe and say, you can't afford to have a no deal either. Unfortunately, it's a bit more painful on our side than it is on theirs. Uh, Joy, what do you think about uh, how Theresa May has to sort of control the, the narrative then based based on this with, with both sides saying no deal is a, is a bad thing? She's on a summer walking holiday, I believe, coming up. But, but what does her plans look like? Uh, I'm not sure what her plans look like. I and mean, they seem to sort of drift left and right. I yeah. mean, she essentially is just trying to get through every single obstacle until we get to some sort of ending. Um, there's something I think about Theresa May, which is she inspires a great deal of pity in the country. And I often just ask people who aren't that interested in politics um, what they say. And, oh, God, I feel sorry for her. I feel sorry for her. So while we in um, kind of the Westminster village sit here carping about her... Um, I think these sort of the, the rest of the country is sort of following this with slightly different um, sense of how she, not how she's doing. They, they all think she's doing very badly, but they feel so they feel in a sort of soft way. You know, who the hell could do a good job in this particular situation? You're right. given an impossible task. Um, your own you know politicians on either side of you are trying to tear you apart. Where does she go from here? Um, well, the, the most obvious thing is either to kind of agree to the customs union, in which there was a vote in the Lords, uh, or to begin looking seriously at an Article 50 extension, because right. it looks very much like we aren't going to get transition arrangements, um, future arrangements sorted out in time. Um, to get an Article 50 extension, um, the chances are she could do it, but she'd have to promise some sort of vote or referendum. It, it can't just be because she's been stalling. And the other quite amusing option is that the EU27, this was mentioned in the Sunday Times, have themselves been sort of thinking, well, should we just offer them an extension on Article 50 uh, just to get them out of this particular pickle? And I think that idea started as a joke and is now becoming serious. What do you think of the narrative that's going on now? Are these the important topics that we need to, to be looking at in the in sort of the dog days of summer now, Quentin? Well, we can't stop. I mean, we've yeah. only got eight months <laughs> yeah. left to do this monumental task of getting there. There's still no sign of an agreement on the Irish border, actually. Right. That's really what's holding everything uh, at, uh, up. Because if we can't get an agreement which keeps an invisible border in Ireland, i.e., 
we're basically the rules are the same on both sides of the border, then we can't, nothing else will fall into place. Right. And that's the problem. So what Theresa May's come up with is this sort of... Uh, muddled and terribly complicated compromise of having customs facilitation agreement, which Brussels has already said, hey, I don't think that adds up. But she's that's to prove that actually a bad deal is better than no deal. And in a way, come back to this idea of all this stuff about no deal. I think that's what she's trying to prove, that any deal is better than no deal. And that's how she's going to try and win a majority in the House of Commons. I don't think it's there. And that's why we're in this very dangerous position where there isn't a, a, there isn't a majority in the House of Commons for any deal at all. Mm. And then where do we go? General election another referendum. It's got to be somewhere other than where we are now. I want to go back just uh, briefly to uh, concern out of other industries in the UK. Uh, the audio, auto industry reports are uh, some deep concern there about this no-deal scenario. Nine out of ten cars produced in the UK are for export. Surely dom the domestic demand means the market then would collapse. Is that right, Joy? Well, actually, I think the domestic market of cars is already collapsing, right. um, which is partly to do with our own Brexit paralysis and right. people not wanting to invest in a new car. So the uh, British auto industry has become, or the British-based auto industry has become heavily reliant on Europe to right. buy the cars. Um, now, if we leave the EU, we then start sticking 10% tariffs on everything, um, and then it, we're, the British-based industries are again at a disadvantage. JLR is already talking about moving more production to Slovakia. Um, Nissan, why would it stay in the UK right. outside the EU when it has specifically cited its plants here in order to have access to the EU market? So it, our, our car market makers may suffer, but they may in fact just move to be on the mainland or uh, mainland the continent. Where else are we seeing concern from industry in this country, Quentin? Well, anybody who's got a complicated supply chain where right. goods go in and out across borders more than once, I mean, five, six times. So you've got pharmaceuticals, mm. you've certainly got the aerospace industry, anything in the sort of uh, manufacturing industry has tended to get into this. The thing is, I think, that what people have all lost sight of is that when people talk about, oh, we'll get a free trade deal, it'll be all right. What we've been involved in is something much, much more than a free trade deal. It was called the single market. And this was a fantastic deal, almost entirely invented by the British in the 1980s, persuaded the rest of Europe to take it, where actually... Everything was recognised right across the border. So all the regulations, all the safety standards, not just tariffs that went. And it's everybody, therefore, got terribly excited and got these very complicated supply chains where we, we didn't matter how... <laughs> excuse me, how many borders you crossed, because everything was going to be very quickly available. That's what we're losing with Brexit. That's why it's so difficult. I found myself thinking about, there's a famous YouTube video of a man who decided to make a chicken sandwich from scratch, and it takes him 16, six months. Um, I think he grows the chicken, certainly grows the lettuce and the wheat. Um, costs him about $1,500 to do it, just to prove, and what you prove at the end of it is how complex it is to make right. a simple chicken sandwich. <laughs> Whereas we produce hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands every day for M&S but it is through these incredibly complex supply chains right. that mean you can do it in you know, two, you know a and day And we take flat. them for granted
limited yeah. now because we don't see them, actually. But if you're in industry, oh, those are experts. We mustn't listen to those. But those are the experts who've worked out how to make the most efficient yeah. chicken sandwich. And we're mm. beginning to kind of go backwards towards the sort of, you know, unpacking the whole thing. Mm. Uh, you are listening to Midori House here with me, Daniel Beige, Quentin Peel and Joy Ladico. Coming up next, Macron under fire. And are trains in Britain really the envy of Europe? Stay tuned. Subscribe today to become part of the Monocle family. From product design to the best places to go, Monocle will bring a monthly dose of fresh ideas to your door. Being part of the family also comes with a 10% discount at the shop and online, as well as unlimited access to our online archive. In addition, you will enjoy priority access to selected product collaborations and receive exclusive offers and invitations around the world. Subscriptions start from £55. For more information, visit monocle.com forward slash subscribe. So welcome back. Still with me, Joy Ladico and Quentin Peel. We turn our attention now to France, where President Emmanuel Macron is facing two non-confidence votes today. Yesterday on Midori House, we discussed Macron's plunging approval ratings amidst the political uproar over his handling of a scandal involving a former bodyguard who was found to be beating on a protester while wearing police gear, even though he's not a cop. Today, it's not just the public backlash over the handling of that scandal, but the conservative and socialist opposition are trying to force Macron out. Joy, it seems the honeymoon with Macron in France is surely now over. Yeah, yes and no. Um, I mean, he did have a little rise in the ratings mm. when France won the World Cup. Um, <laughs> oh, yes. That uh, but yes, the sheen is beginning to come off. And what's interesting about this is that he's uh, it's a new centrist party, LREM, and he has opposition on both sides, which is quite heavily weighted um, and who would very much be very pleased to be, begin to expand their supporter base again if they could shrink Macron's. How did uh, this all come to be, Quentin, where we're at this week? Non-confidence vote, the young, charismatic leader, charmed the nation, and now uh, we're back <laughs> where they're trying to get rid of him. I, I fear it's, it's a self-inflicted crisis, mm. really. I mean, here is um, his security man. Who, yeah. he's, he's demonstrated great loyalty. Macron's demonstrated loyalty to his security man, who obviously did a crazy thing. He, he actually went out and was then videoed beating up demonstrators in the May Day demonstrations. And then it appears that the Elysee sort of covered up um, behind him and nothing happened for ages. And that's where it's all gone wrong. It's it's not the actual crime, it's the cover-up, yeah. if you like. Now, yes, perhaps it's it's all to, to Macron's credit that he's loyal to one of his loyal uh, staff. But if he has done wrong, then clearly justice has to take its course. And I think what we've seen in Macron is there is this element of youthful arrogance about him which mm, the edges haven't quite been knocked off and it's just like we had the other day when when he he reprimanded that schoolboy for calling him manu <laughs> and i mean the poor boys had to move school as i understand it really? you know just because oh. the president couldn't take being called by his nickname so there is a bit of a problem there i think he needs to learn a bit of humility George, does that compound things then that, that sort of arrogance that comes off uh, in getting the response to this incident wrong, perhaps in the eyes of the public and the opposition. 
Well, I think the thing is about the French presidency is something rather odd, which is they rather like somebody imperious in charge. Mm. Um, and we've had stories which have barely made any impact on the French public, like uh, £62,000 on haircuts, £26,000 makeup spend, uh, uh, 50000 or 500000 on a new dinner service, depending on who you believe. And those, are the, those, those stories have not... Um, damaged his reputation Hmm. whereas um, take someone like President Hollande who has only one pair of shoes and turns up to see his lover on a scooter and that's (laughs) it he's kind of finished so Macron is playing the part of the president Um, if his approval ratings are beginning to fall um, it strangely isn't because any of the battles we thought were going to happen um, early on like the unions have happened Hmm. Um, it may be that the the French public are beginning to think rather differently about him but I also think um, they, they, they do actually want a sort of strongish man in charge because or woman um because <clears throat> that's how um it's structured that's how you know the french public expect it to happen macron's been in power for just over a year quentin but uh, has he lost the momentum can he get that back can you see that happening well he did pretty well in getting some of the reform moves through that everybody said oh you know that'll be the real battle he he got you know labor market reform through which was uh, important he's he's still struggling with educational reforms that need doing but i do think that macron's election was really answering if you like a plea from the french electorate that they wanted somebody who would knock heads together and actually get on in government they were fed up with the old uh, divided politics and actually the rather corrupt politics so from that point of view i I think he's still got a fair wind behind him, but he can't keep making mistakes. Right. This, I think, is a bump in the road when this is not going to bring him down by any any stretch of the imagination. And I think there's another way of looking at the, his popularity, which I, last I read was 39%, which is uh, many political leaders would be ecstatic to have 39% <laughs> approval ratings <laughs> among their population. Theresa May as well. <laughs> Uh, let's uh, just lastly today uh, move on to trains. Why not? They're one of the best ways to get to know a country or indeed a continent with the interrail being very popular among European travellers, young European travellers. Travelling by train is a great way to meet new people, see amazing views and sit back and just enjoy the journey. So which train does indeed have a uh, country has the best trains. So, well, according to Robert Nisbet, the regional director of the Rail Delivery Group here in Britain, that title goes to the British, even though constant delays and cancellations might indicate otherwise. This, of course, based on a survey of customer satisfaction from 2013 that included countries that don't even have national or regional service. Just so you know, just putting that out there. Joy, in what way then can Britain have the best trains? Well, I'm a little bit baffled and I've now become a kind of anecdotal expert on this because I have just been interrailing all the mm. way across Europe and I also use British train services and in particular I use Great Western Railway. Um, Great Western Railway, uh, there was a period of four months where I would try to take a train on a Sunday uh, and journeys would last six hours, this is a one and a half hour journey, six hours, eight hours, multiple changes, cancellations. For four months I couldn't get a straight journey on a train. Um, and then I went into railing and absolutely everything ran to time. Uh, perfect trains, um, major connections, minor connections. So seen from the perspective of, of Britain, I don't want to be kind of cynical. I don't want to do us down. But um, we've had incredibly poor train services for the last six months across the country. And uh, Mr Nisbet um, is clearly... Uh, d- 
I mean, cl- clearly on something or having a good drink before <laughs> he gets on one of these trains because it really has been mm. a miserable time. Uh, yeah, I don't think he's been to Switzerland or anywhere no, for that matter. Just, uh, <laughs> um, do we think privatizing the railways here really ruined the sort of glory days of, of British train travel? What do you think? I think that the, the, it was a, the way it was done was a huge mess, actually, sort of dividing it between one enterprise running all the railway lines and then a whole proliferation of train companies each doing little bits and it was almost like trying to go back to the Victorian era where everybody built their own railway line and it just hasn't worked it's been a nightmare Um, I think there were problems before I mean I think the tragedy in a way is going back to the 60s when Dr Beeching axed half the railway lines in the country Um, so we've got an awful lot of catching up to do but certainly I'm also a, a great fan of many continental railway systems which I think are fantastic. It must be said, the German railways don't always run on time as they used to, but nonetheless, they're comfortable, they're quick, they're good. And I'm afraid British railways all over the place, I use the lines to Scotland and I use the local lines to Sussex, they're horrible. I took took a train that cost €20 from Prague to Vienna and its quality was better than kind of Eurostar first class. It was extraordinary. Um, The problem with the rail, the tracks is lack of maintenance. And if you go to Sweden... Um, it's not Sweden, sorry, Switzerland, they pour a huge amount of maintenance in, which means that everything runs. Whereas here, you know, GWR, I can blame them for a lot of things, but quite often it's in fact that the the track maintenance company hasn't done their job. And so one company always Mm. gets the blame. 20 euros from Prague to Vienna, did you say? I think I've paid almost 50 pounds to get back from Portsmouth (laughs) with my bike. So uh, interesting there. uh, What country, Quentin, just briefly has done it right? What's your your favorite place to jump on a train? Oh, gosh. Well, the TGV in France is a fantastic train, and they were way out there in front. But it was just those really big... Right. trains that did it but a great way to get from A to B mm. and Joy how about yourself well I fell in love with the kind of clockwork of Switzerland and the way yeah. all its trains just line up absolutely be- beautifully on the platforms you know exactly where you're going cuckoo clockwork everything everything, cl- everything runs so fluidly they know your journey from A to B and they make sure it happens in the most efficient way I'd agree and uh, to, to go into what Quentin said I think the German trains can be pretty good even though they're not always as on time as the, as the Swiss trains but I, I say that Hamburg to, to Berlin with a nice coffee in the morning it doesn't really get better than that that is that is pretty much how you do it i think on the railways well that does bring us to the end of today's show quentin peel and joy ladico thank you so much for joining us here at midori house today's show produced by carlotta ribello research by fernando augusto pacheco and anna savatska and our studio manager christy evans more music next and then at 1900 hours it's monocle on design with josh fennert and then the day's main t- stories will be on the monocle daily at 22 200 with host Marcus Hippie. Midori House back tomorrow at the same time, 1800 in London. I'm Daniel Bates. Thank you so much for listening and goodbye.